This week we're going to look at how English went from this. The drucht of math chath said to the rotor, and bathed every vine. To this. Or to take arms against the say of troubles, and by opposing end them. To this. I was born in Nottinghamshire, more to the northern part. But there, when I was about eight or nine years old, did we go ourselves to Holland. To this. ...hurls all sorts of abuse at me, and all through question time, these two pansies over there, what with retractions of the things which we said about... But our story this week starts with this. Tha, nam and he tha men tha he waned in that any god hevden, by the benichters and bedayers... Carl men and women, and didn't him in prison, and peened him... An extract from the Peterborough Chronicle, written in about 1155, describing a period of anarchy some 18 years earlier, following the reign of King Stephen, and describing in graphic detail the oppression and torture of local people. and 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 Because of turmoil in the country, work on the Chronicle was suspended for 23 years, between 1131 and 1154, just at the period when English was undergoing some of its most dramatic changes. In the earlier section, the writing is Old English, an immensely complex tongue, full of abstruse declensions and complex inflections. A single word could take a multiplicity of forms depending on tense, mood, case, and other grammatical attributes. Even something as basic as the definite article the could be masculine, feminine, or neuter, and had five variant forms as a singular and four as a plural. But when the chronicle resumes in 1154, the language used is immeasurably simpler. The period of Middle English had begun. For most of us, the period of Middle English is associated with Geoffrey Chaucer, though in fact Chaucer was writing some 200 years after the completion of the Peterborough Chronicle. Derek Britton from Edinburgh University has studied how the language of that time might have sounded. The Chaucer I'm going to give you is going to sound a wee bit Scottish or Geordie, insofar as uh, modern RP, and indeed many other accents, ow is going to emerge as oo, so we get surers, not showers, foolers, not fowls, for instance, as you find in modern Scots and Geordie. And GH still has a value. It's not a silent sequence of letters uh, as it is in modern English. So it's as in modern Scots, really. Drucht, not drought. And there'll be a touch of Birmingham or Liverpool in younger for young, in other words, if you like, in lay terms, the G is still pronounced in the NG sequence, and so on. And this is what I've opted for. Juan that April with his surest sorter, the drucht of math chathper said to the rotor, and bathed every vine of switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the floor. Juan Zephyrus ache with his sweater breath, in spirit hath in every halt and hearth the tender crops, and specially from every shearer's end of Engeland, to counterbury thy wend, the holy blissful master fortosaker, that him hath holpen, Juan that thy were sake. 
Our story now jumps forward two centuries to the Elizabethan age, a period indelibly associated in most minds with the plays of William Shakespeare. And our concept of the sounds of those times comes from performances like this. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Without intending any disrespect for Laurence Olivier, Derek Britton believes that Hamlet might actually have sounded quite different. This is uh, Shakespeare, as I would uh, imagine, uh, with some authority, uh, it might have been pronounced. This Shakespeare is going to sound to you rather Irish which is not altogether surprising since uh, modern Southern Irish English, Hiberno-English, was founded on 17th century English. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a say of troubles and by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. Now the, the one very striking thing about that is, is how much easier it is for me to follow, <laughs> not simply because of familiarity. I mean, the language is, 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 is very clear to any modern listener to English, whereas Chaucer, only a couple of hundred years before, has sounded in your reading almost like a foreign language, with only the odd word detectable. What happened? The main thing that happened, I suppose, which probably sort of uh, separates Chaucer uh, from the 16th century, um, is a phenomenon that's come to be known as the Great Vowel Shift. Um, And that's characterised by, in particular, the high monophthongs, front and back, becoming diphthongs. So, E, for instance, in the French loan word, peep, P-I-P-E, became pape, which I've imagined Shakespeare has, on its way towards, not thoroughly established until the uh, end of the 17th century, modern pipe. Um, equally, uh, ou, for instance, in um, a French loan word like doute, had begun its progress to a diphthong, dote and on its way uh, towards modern doubt, therefore. There were changes in grammar and vocabulary as well. In Old English, there were at least six endings that denoted plurals, and many of these had survived into the age of Chaucer. But by the time of Shakespeare, these had, by and large, shrunk to just two, an S ending, as in shoes or houses, and an EN ending, as in oxen or brethren. Though, with our charming instinct for disorderliness, we did keep a few Old English irregular plurals as well, like men, women, g, 
geese teeth and sheep. Verbs, too, were undergoing a long and erratic process of change. Chaucer could choose between ached and oak, climbed and clomb, clue and clawed, torn and teared, and many others, but these were tending now to settle on one invariable form. The TH ending on verbs like hath and doth were becoming S endings, has and does. To find out more about how language was changing at the time, I joined Laura Wright, a lecturer at Cambridge University, examining records from Bridewell Prison in London. This is Mary Day. She's speaking on the 2nd of April in 1575. A Mary Day has suffered from what nowadays we'd call sexual harassment. Mary Day confesseth that about Michaelmas last past, she being in her chamber and setting in her window at work, was beckoned over by one James Foreman. Whereupon she went unto him, thinking his wife had not been well, and knowing no other cause. And so she went with him into his house, and being in the hall, he said unto her, Mary, how dost thou? Where is thy husband? And Mary answers, He is gone a-shooting. And then she asked him, Sir, what is your pleasure? Now notice that she doesn't say, Sir, what is thy pleasure? She says, what is your pleasure? And at this date, in 1575, there's a social distinction between whether you use thou or whether you use you. And James here, James Foreman, is obviously trying to be very familiar with Mary Day. We can tell that from the way he's beckoning her over. So to go on, he said he would have his pleasure of her before she went, whereupon she said she, by fair words, entreated him and deferred the same until another time. And when did thou drop out of Well, it hasn't totally dropped out. There are dialects that do still use it. Um, So you can go to parts of Yorkshire where you will still find it. But effectively, I guess it's gone really by... The mid 1600s. Anyway, literature, you see, literature will always lag behind spoken usage. So you can see it in Shakespeare's plays. You can see it in plays later than then. Um, but it's probably a bit of an archaistic thing, even by the time of Shakespeare. Perhaps no other period in history has been more linguistically diverse and dynamic, more accommodating to verbal invention. It was, after all, the age not just of Shakespeare, but of Marlowe, Lilly, Spencer, Dunn. Ben Jonson, Francis Bacon, Sir Walter Raleigh. In the single century up to about 1620, English gained 10,000 additional words, about half of them sufficiently useful to be with us still. Shakespeare alone created some 2,000. Reclusive, gloomy, barefaced, radiance, dwindle, countless, gust, summit, to name but a few. But he was by no means alone in this unparalleled outpouring. But language never stops evolving. Some fundamental grammatical developments have happened right up to comparatively recent times. David Dennison of Manchester University turns to Jane Austen to demonstrate the point. We have a construction which is absolutely normal. Um, An example would be, I'm being interviewed by Bill Bryson at this very moment. I am being interviewed. I don't think anyone would notice it as being odd in any way. But Jane Austen couldn't say that. She had no, you know, the jargon is, is a progressive passive. No. Um, she didn't have that structure. So she would have had to reduce it to something like, I am interviewed, would be one way that she could have got round it. Or for a different example, rather than saying, 
um, something like um, supper is being prepared, she would say something like supper is preparing. And you get structures like the parcels were carrying down, where we would now say were being carried down. Now, is there a reason that changes of that nature come along? Um, there we're dealing with the internal structure of the language. We're dealing with the kind of change which people are not normally conscious of and where there are various functional pressures to regularise the system, to increase the pattern regularity of the language and so on. Partly because you couldn't say something like um, I'm being obstinate. You couldn't use two occurrences of the verb be next to each other. You couldn't say I'm being obstinate, he's being a pest, anything like that. That also came in at pretty much the same time. From the 16th century onwards, English wasn't just growing up, it was spreading out. By the early 17th century, it had become an international tongue with the establishment of colonies in Virginia and Massachusetts. As ever with these matters, no one can say for certain what the original colonists sounded like. But at Plymouth Plantation, a recreated colonial village in Massachusetts, they work hard at conveying the sound of 17th century America as it might have been. There's some of my neighbours, Goodman Eaton, what he comes out of Bristol. Bristol, really? I just say, well, I do not understand he over much there when he speaks. Well, I expect many of my neighbours say the same about myself as well. I come out of London, myself. And you? I, I was born in Nottinghamshire, more to the northern part. But there, when I was about eight or nine years old, did we go ourselves to Holland. Now, you two lived to Amsterdam for about a year, and then there to Leiden for to dwell more than a dozen years. Mm-hmm. And how old would you be now, then? 27. And you? Oh, I've got just about uh, 18, 17 years to me, somewhere about there. Have you or I unto any young lads about the time? Oh, no. My father, he thinks I'm a bit young yet. That journey of English to Cape Cod was only one of many that English was taking. Here is Loretta Todd of Leeds University. Certainly England was an incredible power, and from about the... 16th century onwards, people travelled down the West African coast all the way around what later became known as Australia. They mightn't have landed in Australia for a couple of centuries, but nevertheless they went to the Far East. Incredible travelling, and and sometimes when I have visited these places and I have seen where people went three, four, five, three, four hundred years ago. It's, it's very impressive. And wherever they went, it was obviously important for them to, they were a trading nation, and they wanted to establish ports. So all along the trade routes, as it were, you'll find ports, little places where the ships could call in. And so you find that there they often left a nucleus of English. Sometimes some sailors would stay in a port, obviously marry or live with one of the local people, but gradually you got a little core of English developing in some of the ports. And, And so that even in the 18th century, you had forms of English all over the world. They used to, quote, sing the song about the empire in which the sun never sets, as I'm sure you you know. But as early, even as the uh, late 18th century, you had an empire, a linguistic empire, in which the sun didn't set. And English was incredibly prestigious. As English travelled the world, it began to take on distinctively different sounds. Mr. Deputy Speaker, in deference to you, I withdraw, but I, can I point out, can I point out, 
that the Leader of the Opposition hurls all sorts of abuse at me, and all through question time, these two pansies over there, what with retractions of the things which we said about them. Anyway, sit down. You're a bunch of nobodies going nowhere. Do you have any idea how long it took for a recognisable Australian accent to emerge? Um, without recordings, it's very difficult to say. But from the earliest recordings, um, in let's say you have recordings going back to about the 1930s, and you have, as it were, people who thought of themselves as English, people maybe at the highest level of society, sounding unbelievably English, unbelievably Southern English, as it were. But you often found the working people with something that was a lot closer to what is now uh, recognised as Australian English. But I think you would probably agree that the overlap between Cockney you know, London speech and um, Australian speech is, is fairly dramatic. Such as? Well, such as, for example, I can't do an Australian accent very well, but um, what linguists would call a dark L, if, I, if I, a word like railway, which might be Ryawai, so that the L almost disappears. You can get that in Cockney, you can get it in Australian English. Just as uh, a quick uh, example, and even a word like um, um, gadai, that die rather than day, that's something you get in London as well. Mm -hmm. You get that sort of pronunciation. Or Australian, um, let's talk strine. Uh, for Australian English. It's the sort of um, features that you get. I mean, one of the shibboleths of pronunciation is how you pronounce this uh, word as in the rain in Spain stays mainly on the plain. I mean, that was why Shaw picked it out. The Irish, where I come from, would say the rain in Spain stays mainly on the plain. And, and we've got one type of pronunciation, but it goes from A to I in Australia. So the rain in Spain stays mainly on the plain, might. America, meanwhile, was finding its own unique ways of delivering the English language, as here in New York. Fourth of July, everybody was doing shooting. They go up on the roof and shoot off guns. You don't hear any of that anymore. But then days it was going on, even even election. The elections, we had more fires on the street. The fire engines had to go around and keep making them out, you know. But the kids them days were pretty wild. That could hardly sound more different from, say, the voices of London's East End. But Robert Easton, a linguistics expert who has coached many Hollywood actors, begs to differ. Alan Alda sent me to London to work with Bob Hoskins on a film called Sweet Liberty. And I had never met Bob before. I knew his work, certainly. And um, so I went to his little house in North London. And uh, he met me and he says, Did you find the tube station all right? And he says, Now, nah. he said, You look a little peaky. It's the old jet lag, isn't it? He said, What about the hotel? Do you like the hotel? Come on in, come on in. He says, I've, I've got the tape recorder set. He said, I've got two copies of the script. Do you take, do you take coffee then? Do you like it with milk then? And I thought, Uh huh. 
this is the man I'm going to teach to be a New Yorker. <laughs> so how do you actually go about conveying the nuances of an American accent to someone with as pronounced a London accent as Bob Hoskins? That was relatively easy because in the working class New York dialect, they failed to pronounce R's before consonants and pauses much the same way as a Londoner. And in fact, the first writers who wrote about New York working class speech felicitously called it American Cockney. And in those days, it was even more like London speech than it is today. And, uh, but you can hear vestigial remnants of London speech in working class New York, the way they say bottle and battle and entitled and Michael's title and mattress. You can hear an enormous number of glottal stops. They drop H's in words like it was huge, and he's got no sense of humor. In the opinion of Robert Easton, even the most exotic American accent contains resonances of the very earliest forms of English. One of our most urgent projects is to develop a national energy policy. As I pointed out during the campaign, the United States is the only major industrial country without a comprehensive, long-range energy policy. The extremely cold weather this winter has dangerously depleted our supplies of natural gas and fuel oil and forced hundreds of thousands of workers off the job. But do you have any idea why Southern speech has that draw? Why, why does it...? There are dialects in England that do have what are called fractured vowels that... Uh, where the vowel is lengthened, that goes all the way back to Anglo-Saxon times. So I think like Dayud and Hayud, there are antecedents in the British Isles. Shirna Shiman, Shadu for theatre, Wanunda Waltnum, Weop El Yeshaft, Quid on Kuningus Fool, Christ was on Roda. As English traveled around the world, it not only came to sound different in the various places it settled, but also changed in substance. I'm at Heathrow, waiting for a flight to America. Many of my fellow transatlantic travelers here will be familiar with differences in meaning between American and British English. Altogether, some 4,000 words are used differently in common speech in one country from the other, quite a considerable number, and there's great scope for embarrassment. To keep your pecker up is an indecent proposition in America, whereas a reference to a woman's fanny which to an American is an innocent synonym for the buttocks, would at a British dinner party provoke an embarrassed silence. Sometimes the differences in meaning take on a kind of bewildering circularity. A tramp in Britain is a bum in America, while a bum in Britain is a fanny in America, while a fanny in Britain is... Well, you see what I mean. To a foreigner, it must sometimes seem as if we are being intentionally contrary. Consider that in Britain the Royal Mail delivers the post, not the mail while in America the Postal Service delivers the mail, not the post. Among the many thousands of words that have come into English from America are commuter, bedrock, striptease, cold spell, gimmick, babysitter, teenager, telephone, radio, to butt in, bucket shop, blizzard, and, believe it or not, stiff upper lip. But this kind of influence on the English language is not limited to America. Loretto Todd again. You only have 
to think of words like us from Australian English like kangaroo and kookaburra and boomerang and all the rest of them. We've got an incredible number of words. That's the interesting thing. Wherever English takes root, we lift words from the indigenous languages and then those words become ours. I talked to you earlier about a taboo and I mean that's a word from the South Pacific, tapu, meaning something that you shouldn't do, a particular thing. But what would we do without a word like that? And then we indigenize it, we turn it into an English word and it becomes a word that everybody uses and we quickly forget that we borrowed it from the uh, South Pacific. Uh, So that I suppose it would be easier for us to borrow words like that via Australia. People coming as it were back home or coming on visits would bring words like that and then gradually they would be absorbed into the English language. I think one way in which Um, we might notice an Australian influence would be in the use of E, you know, as a diminutive. You know how Aussie Mm -hmm. and Brizzy and that sort of thing. Now, of course, you've probably always had that in in Britain and indeed in America as well. But the overlay, that's used much more widely in Australian English. Great big men uh, using abbreviations that you might think of as diminutives in in parts of the world. And yet, Kazi, for example, for a a, a swimsuit, uh, admittedly, that's a wee bit old-fashioned now, but nevertheless, you had men using it and so on. That sort of thing has come into Britain. And uh, we've also started using a lot of abbreviations like that. The the influence always works, I think, two ways. And, And I mean, again, I talk to this to some of my students who are teenagers, and they rather like spunk. Uh, for a handsome young man, which they've picked up from the soap opera neighbours, so true. somebody's a spunk. <laughs> uh, and, and they might know, this generation might know where they got it, but in four or five years' time, spunk will either fade or it will have become so integrated that nobody will remember that it was first used, perhaps, on the media in Australia. Of course, just because a language becomes global doesn't mean that everyone using it will understand each other as the comedian Arthur Smith has discovered. Do Americans have trouble with your accent ever? They, they can do, although mostly if you're in... I always sound ter- I make myself sound English. You always sound so English when you're in New York or something. It's, excuse me, I don't suppose you have a, an apple donut, do you? <laughs> of course we got an apple donut. It's a goddamn donut shop. We got a crocodile donut. <laughs> but I remember being right down in the south years ago, and I went to an ice cream place. I was in the south of America, and... Um, I said, excuse me, um, could I have an uh, apple and blueberry ice cream, please? And she said, what? I said, could I have an apple and blueberry? She said, what? I said, could I? And she turned around and she said, I think this guy's French. Are you French? <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, so I thought there was only one way. I really wanted this blackberry and apple uh, ice cream. So I said... Could I have a blackberry and apple ice cream, please? <laughs> she said, oh, sure. The combination of the English language's mongrel pedigree and international spread led to a language that was rich in texture, but extraordinarily disorderly. Endless attempts have been made to bring order to this disorderliness. But for that, we need another program. <laughs>